Hey, it's Sarah. And before we get to today's show, I want to remind you to subscribe and follow The Right Time with Bobani Jones. Three times a week, Bo brings you his unique take on sports, culture, and everything in between. Plus, on Fridays, he's joined by a recent guest on my podcast, the great Dominique Foxworth. You can find The Right Time wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for world-class soccer, ESPN Plus is where to find it. The best teams, the biggest stars, and over 20 international leagues and tournaments. Serie A, Bundesliga, MLS, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and more. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Jessamyn Stanley, and my dilemma is that I have too much stuff. I'm holding on to too many belongings. I'm I'm cocooning myself in stuff. I feel like a bag lady. I'm just like carrying things around and I'm ready to shed, ready to let that go. Okay, so because I'm of two minds on this and I absolutely love the look of a clean, minimalist home, but also love all my tchotchkes and memories and mementos from trips and photographs and such, I don't think I can sanely give advice on this. I'm constantly telling myself to do a closet clean out. I'm often thinking about the environmental toll of stuff, like party favors and sponsored logoed giveaways that no one wants. It's just wasted labor and materials and and more trash when they're tossed. But I also have a full closet full of costumes for every party and occasion. So the answer is, is I'm not the one to answer this. Marie Kondo is. Not the commish. Watch her show. Decide what sparks joy. Recognize that, you know, cleaning up and streamlining your space is also something that sparks joy more so than some of that crap you're hanging on to that you just need to give away and that you'll never, ever miss once it's gone. So the commish defers to Marie Kondo. That's your answer. That's what she said. Happy June. Happy it's really, truly summer and everything is feeling so much more normal. And let's get back to baseball and music and friends and barbecues and fun. And happy Pride Month. I'm excited for my first guest of the month to kick off what will be a month-long series of of end-of-show moments sharing what pride means, a sort of personal and thoughtful look at the many different ways that LGBTQIA folks feel and and view pride. Uh, It won't be every main guest this month uh, themed for pride, but you can expect that moment at the end of every episode with a guest. Um, And so this episode, after Jessamine shares her thoughts on pride, uh, there will be a totally different special guest, uh, uh, unrelated, Cubs first baseman and Captain Anthony Rizzo, who I had a chance to talk to a couple days ago, um, joins me for a little chat about the team's recent success, uh, vaccination holdouts on the team, year two with David Ross as skipper and more. So stick around after Jessamine for that quick bonus pod. And now the main event. This week's guest is Jessamine Stanley, a yoga teacher and body positivity advocate and writer who self-identifies as a, quote, fat femme or queer femme. She is the author of the book Everybody Yoga, Let Go of Fear, Get on the Mat, Love Your Body, and the upcoming book Yoke, My Yoga of Self-Acceptance. Jessamine also created The Underbelly, which is an app and website for yoga practitioners of all levels, and she co-hosts the podcast Dear Jessamine. We get into how yoga really saved her life from self-doubt, from limitations and a belief that being fat meant she wasn't invited or included, how she reconciles her own tendency to body shame, how she helps others see movement and body and barriers differently, 
um, and how all of us need to not put restrictions on ourselves, especially as we get older, uh, because of doubts of how we'll be seen or whether we'll we'll succeed. So um, really great, useful conversation for everybody. Hope you love it. That's what she said. I was already so excited to talk to Jessamine Stanley, but then I started to dive in some of the research for the pod. And you're friends with my girl, Catherine Budig, who was just on. You did the Happiness Lab podcast with Dr. Lori Santos, who I had on the podcast, who I find so incredible. You're in all these spaces that I love. And just listening to you talk to some of these people that I that I care about and think are so great made me all the more excited to pick your brain and talk to you about all sorts of good things. And it's the first podcast of Pride Month. And there's just everything's coming together all at once. Um, let's start way back when, when you were a kid. Um, you describe yourself in your book as fat, occasionally smelly, supremely awkward weirdo, which is such a kind way to describe young Jessamine. Um, let's start with who you were as a kid. <laughs> you know, I think you, I think you covered it all. I was all. <laughs> I have always been weird. I've always been like not accepted by other people. I was never athletic as a child, although that's not actually true. I am extremely athletic and have always really enjoyed it, but I'm not the fastest person. I've never been the fastest. I've never been um, the most coordinated. And that was really pointed out to me at a very young age. Like I remember doing the presidential fitness exam as a kid. I don't know if you did this. Yeah, I used to love it except for the pull-ups. (laughs) <laughs> okay, the pull-ups. My, so my challenge was the mile. I uh. was like, I hate running. I do not like this. And and honestly, that mentality is so much of what holds you back from doing any time of any type of activity. But it was a very strong negative experience to the point where I was like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not putting myself in this ex- type of experience. But I actually love being being outside and just feeling the air move through me. But so much of it was wrapped up in like how other people see me and what, uh, what my body looks like and what I thought that made me meant that I was capable of. And it just, it created this whole complex, but I do feel like, you know, as a kid, I mean, I was I was bullied. I was bullied to the point where I wanted to go to a different high school than mm. the kids that I went to middle school with. And so I, I come from very working class family, not the type of family where someone would go to boarding school. But I found out about a scholarship program where I would be able to uh, get a large scholarship to attend an all girls boarding school. And that was that is a huge part of who I am, that experience of going to Salem Academy and really having um, being around a bunch of other weirdos, (laughs) being around a lot (laughs) of other uh, Hermione Grangers, I think. I was going to say, did you identify as witches when it's called Salem? Academy. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. We, we, we definitely identified the school as being like Hogwarts. We were big, <laughs> like, yes, but I am. Um, so I got to be okay with being weird, but it did. Sh- it shaped who I am for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting because you talked about moving as a kid and like feeling the air move through you and enjoying being outside. And when you're young, that's what it is. You're, you're playing tag, you're cartwheeling, you're running around, you're being outside until your mom yells at you to come inside. And then at some point it does become more about either competition or comparing yourself to others within 
gym class or aesthetically, what do I look like and how does exercise fit into how I look and how others see me? And once that gets wrapped up, so many people completely abandon just the good stuff of movement because it's so wrapped up in that. And they forget that it can be all its own thing, completely separate from competition, completely separate from sports or anything else. I think that so much of our world is really wrapped up in competition and metrics and how we compare against one another. And so much of my reclamation of physical activity has been really connecting with the child within and being like, you know what, what would like five-year-old Jessamine enjoy? What would she really like to do? Your five-year-old Jessamine likes to turn cartwheels just because she's not trying to like make the cheerleading squad. She's not trying to show people people that, you know, she's on the same level as like Simone Biles or something. She's not trying to do any of that. No she's one just is. Trying to Literally no one. <laughs> Literally. We, we say your name, Simone. Yeah. But, but it's like this feeling of just like, I'm just going to do it because it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. And that like, I'm going to, I remember back in the day, I used to just run down the block just because it felt good. I would ask my mom to time me just so I could <laughs> know like, like, how fast am I going? Not because I want to compare it against someone else. And I think that really a appreciating any type of athleticism is always that. It's just really getting into your spirit. And it is ultimately a spiritual practice, any kind of physical activity. And I mean, I think like when you talk to ultra marathon runners and like people who do the type of movement where it's like, you're going beyond like there's no right. like if you're there's running no ultra, to run that far there's just no reason you <laughs> there's no reason to shit yourself there's no reason to like need to pass that you know what i mean like it's only because you are digging deep into your spirit you are really calling to something and i think that that is so beautiful and i'm grateful to have that kind of connection as an adult but it only i mean there was a huge lapse of time where i was like no, I can't do it. I can't even try. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Totally agree. And I want to get to some of those boundaries and the things we tell ourselves without even giving ourselves a shot. But first I want to go to, okay, so you're, you're fat and smelly and otherwise, (laughs) and, um, and you move away from movement for joy and start to judge yourself as you're, you know, struggling in the mile. And it takes you a while to get back to something, but your, your aunt Tracy, who is this just fabulous, lady um Mm, you aspire to be says come with me to bikram yoga which by the way of all the yogas to start with (laughs) is so intense my best friend is a yoga bikram teacher although they don't call themselves bikram anymore because thankfully Mm -hmm. no one wants to associate with that person anymore they're just 105f uh but 105 for reason 105 degrees in the room uh sweaty stinky strict it is yeah um And that's where you get initiated into yoga. So I'm not surprised you didn't like it, but tell me what that that day was like. You know, what I would say is that I I actually now always recommend Bikram yoga for brand new practitioners because people be like, you know, what type of yoga should I practice if I've never practiced yoga before? I'm like, literally just find whatever you have available. Don't worry about trying to like definitely go to a fundamentals yoga class where they're going to break down downward facing dog and mountain pose. I actually think that in college, I went to a yoga class like that. And I'm tell- I'm saying I think because I don't even remember. I was so <laughs> bored by the experience. And like, I really needed the way that now 
at this stage in my practice, I live for a slow, broken down class like that where we go through each posture really slowly. But I did not have the patience for that when I first started. And I think a lot of people don't. And so I think starting with something that's really difficult is dope because it immediately pushes you out of your comfort zone. And it's like, it's kind of like getting pushed off the diving board. Just get pushed off and you'll figure it out. You you <laughs> will figure it out by the time you get down there. So anyway, that first class. Um, yeah, I was 16. My aunt was obsessed with Bikram yoga at the time, which Bikram kind of has that effect on people where it's like they're mm-hmm. it's like they have drunk a Kool-Aid or something and they're <laughs> like, no, you've got to try this. It's gonna change your life. And so she would she did that, and I was like, I mean, what's like I got nothing better to do, so why not go to this hot yoga class? Sure. And I just remember walking in and immediately being overwhelmed by not only how hot it was, because to your point, it was about a hundred hundred ish degrees, like somewhere between a yeah. hundred and a hundred and five ish degrees. It kind of depends on how masochist or how sadistic the teacher totally. is. Totally. Yeah. But um I I remember it being really hot, but it also just smelled really bad. Mm-hmm. This coming from the person who is admitting to being smelly or something. Maybe, maybe it was you. I, yeah. No, are you the kind of person exactly. that I'm said like, you just always have a bad roommate? Because it's you. Is it, it <laughs> yeah. melted Delta? I don't know. But, um, but yeah, no, it's no, the carpet. Yeah, it's like, the carpet. <laughs> it is the carpet that has soaked up like gallons of sweat. And so, and then I was immediately sweating from places that I actually didn't know human beings sweat from. Like I was sweating from the tops of my fingers and in my eyebrows. And Uh and this was before we'd actually done any physical exercise. And I was just like, how am I going to make it through 90 minutes of this? And I made it like a third of the way through the class before I was like, I have to get out of here. Like I cannot breathe. I have to get out. And they tell you not to walk out of yoga class, walk, not to walk out of a hot yoga class before it's over. But I was like, these people don't know me. I have to get out of here. And so I walk out and I immediately felt amazing because there was air conditioning. And I was like, what was the problem before? Oh, it's no big deal. I'll go back in. And I learned why you should not do that. And it's really because your body, the temperature shift can be so extreme that there are a lot of different physical reactions that you can have, a lot of bad physical reactions. And I felt really nauseous and I walked out and I was like, I'm never doing this again. Yoga sucks. And so even, so yeah, I think I probably, someone probably convinced me to go to a yoga class, a different yoga class when I was in college. I don't even remember. All I know is that I was like, I hate yoga. It's not for me, whatever. Mm -hmm. And up until I was in graduate school and that's when things really changed for me, but I did not, I was not into it. I thought it was the worst. I will say that I'm very thankful that my friend's studio got away from the carpet. They just said it's not necessary. We know that's traditional, (laughs) but it's not necessary. And I would agree because we don't need to add the stink to everything else. So, you know, it's fascinating. You, you, you go to a new school. Um, there's a lot of things that mm-hmm. happened to you over the course of like your really formative years. Um, your other aunt that you were very close with passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying mm-hmm. to adjust to a new town. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of coming to terms with a lot of the things that you speak about a lot. You know, your body is a punchline to people and you're starting to learn mm-hmm. by the way society treats you and looks at you that being fat means you don't get to do things or want things or be like everybody else. There are restrictions placed by other people's expectations on you before you even decide whether you want something or can do something. You're already sort of being told subtly or loudly that you can't. You bring all that into 
getting back into yoga. And I, and I want you to give us the space mm -hmm. you were in when you rediscovered it and why, when you came back to it, it felt so different. So the yoga itself had not changed at all. It was really me that had evolved. And I think that what I had missed maybe the first time around was that it is okay for something to be hard and it is okay for it to be challenging and it is okay for me to be pushed out of my comfort zone. I think that in this society, we have an obsession with being good and happy and doing the best and all of these different ideas that have nothing to do with what yoga actually is. Yoga is about accepting every single piece of yourself. And that means accepting all of your complications. It means really sitting with them. And even, even in the mainstream definition of yoga, this is not included because a lot of people, even in their yoga practices, will try to not engage with the difficult parts of themselves. But I was at a stage in my life when I was going through a period of depression and I was uh, I talked to a friend of mine about it and she was like, oh my God, she had drunk the Bikram yoga Kool-Aid, specifically the Bikram yoga Kool-Aid. And she was like, oh my God, come to yoga with me. It's going to change your life. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I already tried it. I know it's not for me, but she convinced me. She got me caught up on a Groupon and I was like, sure, I'll go to this yoga class. With you, but I'm only going one time because I already know it sucks. That's how I but ended I up doing trapeze and I had bruises on the back of my knees for those damn Groupons. They get you. It's like, there you go. Know it that's exactly. Why would I not do trapeze? <laughs> like, that's exactly right. See, now you've made me even stripper, more that story. Made me stripper want to pole dance class that I did. That was not great. This is exactly right. <laughs> well, I was like, I was like, yeah, I'll go once. It's fine. And I went and I just, it. I think it's so interesting that it was the exact same type of yoga that I'd hated before. And Bikram, I always think of it as like the McDonald's of yoga because it is literally the same no matter where you go. It's like, mm -hmm. it's always like this. It's always hot. Even if they're doing a shorter class, like it's always the same types of postures, like it's very predictable and the smell is still there. The heat is still there. And I didn't, when I first walked in, I was like immediately transported to that mental space of like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not going to be good at this. And, and looking around at what everybody else is doing. And I, I felt like, I should have practiced before I got there. Like everybody knows that I don't know what I'm doing and this is just a waste of my time. And I had this moment relatively quickly in the class where I was like, re relatively early on, where I was like, so are you going to spend this whole class just talking shit about yourself? Because like you could have <laughs> done that for free, but if you <laughs> spent $30 to come, like you could at least just try. And like, maybe you're going to fall down. And maybe everyone in the class is going to see you fall down and maybe the teacher is going to see and they're going to know that you don't know what you're doing and maybe they're all going to ostracize you and you could still just try, even if all those things happen, not even thinking like, but it'll be okay. No, it won't be okay. Just assume <laughs> it's going to happen anyway. and move forward. <laughs> and it was like, a, I mean, it was night and day because truly that yoga class was not the only place in my life where I had created boundaries for myself. There were so many parts of my life where I decided this is who I am and I can't go further than this. And I know what I'm capable of. And when I started to 
approached my yoga practice with this attitude of like, I'm just going to try that idea of just try. It totally revolutionized my life. And I think that it's something that as a fat person, I definitely, I, I mean, it's, I, I don't really equate my yoga journey and my body liberation journey because I do think that yoga is both a bigger concept than, than body liberation. And I think that um, it's very possible to practice yoga and be very, to, to not be body liberated, to be very right. body negative. So I don't know that I would equate them, but, but maybe I do for you. Think that yeah. I, I don't, I still wouldn't even necessarily say for me, but I do think that it was very pivotal in the way that I understood myself and the way that I currently understand myself to be and what I am capable of and who I am allowed to be. It was very helpful to be able to say, you could just try, you could just do it. And maybe, right. and it doesn't matter what the outcome's going to be. You can just try. There's a great new Nike ad that's out right now, and it's entirely about uh, celebrating failing, being really bad at sports. And a kid oh, gets yes. punched in the face, and the girl just crushes and, and falls trying to skateboard. And it's not the kind of thing you usually see. And it was, it was, it was really powerful the first time I saw it. I'm like, oh, this is a different tack to take. And to your point, one of the issues I think with getting older is that we become so proficient at things that we become really uncomfortable being bad at things. When you're a yes. kid, everything is new and everything you're trying, you suck at. I talk about this a lot with trying to learn the guitar because I used to play clarinet as a kid, but I, and I became all state and clarinet and I knew what I was doing. But when I started, I could play hot cross buns for an hour and be like, <laughs> so, I'm like, I'm so good. I'm playing hot cross buns. And now I pick up a guitar. And if I can't play like an entire Ani DeFranco song with frets and all, then I'm like, well, I guess I shouldn't be doing this. Like this isn't for me. And we do that with everything. That's so relatable. Yes. It literally, we do. That is so deeply relatable. <laughs> There's so many people but you talk who about, Yeah. Right. But you talk about going into that room and, and just immediately being like, well, I'm looking around and I won't be the best at this or even good. So I should just not try. And so what an incredible moment to realize how much more you got out of it when you just decided to not care about the possibility of failing and to just mm -hmm. go for it. Um, what were you doing? So what were you in grad school for? Mm -hmm. What had you always imagined you were going to do with your life before this rediscovery <laughs> of yoga? So I, so I was studying performing arts management, which is nonprofit arts management. And I worked in nonprofit arts organizations. I worked for a theater dance company, um, a music festival. And I really, even now, I'm very passionate about philanthropy and advocacy and really believe that communities have to support, that, that any organization or any business really only exists to serve its community. But, um, and I really had no aspiration of being a yoga teacher at all. Even after I started practicing yoga, zero aspiration to teach. And um, when I was, when I started practicing yoga at home, which was after I had been practicing for a little while, I started practicing at home because I just, I found myself sliding into 
this mental space that I'd been in before I started practicing yoga. And I realized that it wasn't enough to like be able to practice in studios when I could afford it. I was like, no, I have to be doing this. I need to take this like medicine. So it just became my medicine that I would take at home. So I really came back to it, seeking it as a way of taking care of myself. And I, before I really had not been thinking about why I practice yoga or anything like that. But when I started practicing at home, I started documenting it because I wanted to have a record of my practice and be able to see the changes over time in the way that I practice different postures. And I started sharing it on social media because I wanted to connect to a community of people outside of my home. And another, I mean, I think that um, when I was seeking that connection, I thought that I was going to receive more feedback from people being like, like, oh yeah, I practice downward dog this way, or I practice this pose that way. But really what I got was a lot of people being like, I didn't know that fat people could practice yoga. Hmm. And I was just like, why do you think that fat people can't practice yoga? Fat people do all kinds of things all the time. And really what we have is just a major visibility issue in which only one type of human being is glorified as like the way that you should be. And that body is not just thin and not just able-bodied, but it's also white and it is traditionally educated and it's definitely wealthy. A huge part of why I started practicing yoga at home is because I could not afford to practice yoga in studios. And so I realized that in sharing my practice online, I could share, I could show something that I knew has existed for way longer than I have been practicing yoga. And that is fat people who do more than just sit on the couch and hang out, but really the, and also expand the definition of what it means to practice yoga. But even in that, I didn't aspire to teach yoga or to really to be leading anyone else, but I had people reach out to me from all over the world to come teach them. And I was just like, why do you need for me to come teach you? There are literally thousands of yoga teachers. I would recommend teachers. I would recommend online resources and be like, you really don't need for me to come teach you. But the demand was so extreme that I eventually went into training. And even when I went into training, I was just thinking like, I mean, maybe I'll teach like if I if I feel called to, or if, if somebody really asks me, but I think of myself very much as before YTT and which is what we call yoga teacher training and after YTT, because before YTT, I really understood the practice in a very superficial way. I thought of it as like, this is a place that I go. It's a thing that I do. It's not a life that I live. It's not something that I'm applying to every moment of my life. And during training, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but it is true. I think that my soul was really cracked open. Yeah. I really can't. Really quick, I want because I want to. Oh, I want to yeah. talk about training, but I want to quickly get back to when you're talking about posting your poses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of that mm. too was that you you weren't able to afford to go into studio as often. So part of that was let me document what I'm doing to see if I'm doing it right because I don't have a teacher exactly. here to correct me, and then to put exactly. it out in the world and have other people say 
oh, when I do, you know, chair pose, I do this. And instead of just getting that, it was this revelation of exposing something to the world that they hadn't seen before, which um, I think that's a fascinating part of it, too, because most of us, even if we were to pick up, especially during COVID or the pandemic, a new um, exercise practice, wouldn't feel compelled to document it and might even be Mm -hmm. uncomfortable doing so. And I wonder what you went through at first when you thought, okay, let me let me see how I look in these poses if no one's going to be there to check on them and went back to look at the photos or the video. What did you think of when you first started doing that? You know, I have been blogging since I was in middle school, high school. And so it <laughs> felt very natural to me to document my life. It wasn't something where I was like, what are other people going to think of it? Like, again, back to the point earlier of like, I've always been weird. I have always known what it's like to be disregarded to have people not care about what I'm doing. So to me, it was, it only got weird whenever other people were looking at what I was doing. That to me is strange. But to me, it was just like, I'm literally going to document my practice because I don't, as you said, I don't have a teacher that's watching me. And I think it is so beneficial, not just in yoga, but in any type of physical activity to record yourself doing it so that you can really watch your form and technique Mm -hmm. and just see, just watch the playback and and it doesn't have anything to do with anyone else and if Instagram had been developed enough to really be private back then because I got on Instagram back whenever it first came out so I wasn't even thinking about like other people engaging with it beyond other yoga people looking at it and honestly initially I was I felt dismissed by the other yoga people who were on uh, Instagram I felt like they were you know, do it. They're doing their thing and their thing didn't have anything to do with what I was doing. And I was just kind of like, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm just going to keep doing it. But I think that for anyone, I think that a lot of times we get caught up in fear around what other people are going to think of us and think like, well, you know, my body, especially when you can search any hashtag and see all these bodies to compare yourself against. And the reality is that we're all different on purpose. We have to be different. And just because, you look different than someone else doesn't mean that you're not capable of doing everything that they're doing and more. And I find that I learned so much about my own body through watching the bodies of other people. And especially if I am not in a space of comparing myself against them and I'm really just like, oh, how do you do it? Okay, cool. This is how I do it. Just like we keep talking about, like when you're a kid and the the freedom that happens, when you watch kids, like they will just play with anybody and they will, they're not competitive. They're just like, let's have fun together. And that's really the vibe of it. And I think at its core, at its best, that is what wellness community on social media offers is that it may, it is that safe space where like, yeah, put yourself out there, show your practice, do your own documentation. And like, we can all be in this really special meditation together. So take me to teacher training then, because uh, there were a combination of things that happened. You know, your family offered to help you pay for teacher training because there were a couple articles that had, you know, popped up about you because you were unique in the space and because you were getting some attention on social. Um, But at the time, you still thought to yourself, yoga was one specific thing. And then you end up in teacher training and a number of different things happen that sort of crack you open. Yes. Yeah. So just, yeah, I'm glad that you touched on the money aspect of it because I definitely could not afford to go to training. And that was a huge part of why I did not want to go. I mean, I still, I I was, 
I took a leave of absence from graduate school and technically I'm still on a leave of absence from grad school. And I was like, I'm paying on, I'm paying a debt on an education that I have not yet finished. How can I go to a yoga teacher training? <laughs> and I do think though, that the cost of yoga teacher trainings is one of the reasons that the yoga teaching community is not very diverse. And it's because only some people can really afford to do that type mm-hmm. of training. But, um, I did have family assistance to be able to go to training. And when I went, I recognized why there have to be so many yoga teachers and really in truth, why everyone should practice yoga and teach yoga to some degree. It might not be teaching yoga classes online or in person. It might not even be calling it yoga, but being able to really like look inside yourself and accept every piece of yourself and then reflect that journey to other people. That's what teaching yoga really is. It's not reciting facts or telling other people how they should be living their lives. It's just living your own truth authentically and reflecting that to other people. And I thought, you know, not everybody is going to vibe with the way that I teach this practice, but even one person might. And if I can help one person find a way to be more compassionate toward themselves, that is a step toward us living in a world where we all reach from a place of compassion and love as opposed to a place of fear. Right now, we live in a deeply fear-based world. Everyone is scared of everything all the time. And it shows in our political landscape, it shows in our environmental landscape. And I think that if we can really, our social, cultural scape. And so I left training really feeling like, okay, great. I want to reach every person who has asked me to come teach them. That is going to be my goal. And I literally, back in the beginning, I made a list of every place that someone had ever asked me to come teach them. And in my mind, I'm still gradually working my way down that list. I don't (laughs) keep the list anymore because the list is literally everywhere in the world. And the, the way that I am attacking it is like, I can't physically be in the same place as everyone that this has been made more clear by coronavirus. But even before, even in the before times, I can't be in every place at the same time. So I started the underbelly, my wellness community, because I wanted to have a space where anyone, no matter where you are on the globe, can find a place where wellness is for you and you can make wellness You can be well your way. So that's why I started the the underbelly. But even with that, like not everybody is into taking yoga classes or cares about meditation. And so that's why I started writing books. And my first book, Everybody Yoga, Let Go of Fear, Get on the Mat, Love Your Body, is really just about how you can kick off a yoga practice and how anyone, no matter where you are in your life, can go from sitting on the couch reading that book to practicing yoga in the same day. But I realized in the process of writing that book that there was a necessity to talk about what really comes up in your yoga practice after you start practicing all of the internal conflict, the complications of accepting your intersectional identity. And that's what my next book, Yoke, My Yoga of Self-Acceptance, which will be out this summer in June, this month, right? Nice. Time for this podcast, June 2021, um, is about that journey. And it's about It's about what happens once you start practicing yoga. But even with that, like not everybody likes books. 
you know, not everybody's into that. So that's why I started my podcast here, Justin, <laughs> to also talk about the the way that yoga is really being taught and practiced in every other part of our lives as well. We've reached the promotional part of the podcast where your empire <laughs> has been laid bare in every in every aspect. Um, you know, while while we're at it, I'll just, you know, quickly mention that you're also a brand ambassador for Kotex and Lane Bryan and Motrid and all these other things. So uh, we can find you in a lot of places and people have certainly seen you all over ad campaigns. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Oh, vivacious. I love all the V's. Vivacious. I love the word vivacious. Technically means lively in temper, conduct, or spirit. Dates back to the 1640s from the Latin for lively or vigorous. But what I love about vivacious is it feels so specific to me, so pointed in its usage. Um, It can technically be used to describe a city, a, a design style, or a kind of prose. But when I hear vivacious, I think confident, radiant, glamorous woman. Just none of the synonyms for vivacious work for what I'm imagining. Sprightly, sparky, peppy, jaunty, pert. Those are not the same. Vivacious is its own thing. Vivacious is a vibe. And I love that that's your favorite. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. In honor of this week's guest, the word of the week is pandiculation. A stretching and stiffening, especially of the trunk and extremities when fatigued and drowsy or after waking from sleep. It originated in the 1610s from the Latin, an instinctive stretching of oneself as upon awakening. You've definitely done this. You've seen your cat or dog do it. It's not just stretching. It's constricting, releasing, relaxing. It's basically our nervous system's way of waking up our sensory motor system and you know getting ready to move it again. And pandiculation is often a part of yoga practice too. Um, so fitting for this guest and a fun word, pandiculation in a sentence. Then when the dog and I awoke from a shared mid afternoon nap, we engaged in unintentionally synchronized pandiculating. Now let's get back to the interview. I want to get back to the teacher training because I do think that there are people that do yoga and what they get out of it is very physical. And in fact, being a college athlete and you know, post-college looking for ways to push myself, but having had suffered injuries. Um, at first I didn't like yoga. It didn't get me going enough as someone who was used to these super high energy, super, you know, feeling like I'm pouring sweat and running and whatever else. So I used to run a couple miles to get to the yoga and then run home. So I'd get the stretching, but in the meantime, I would also be doing these. And then, you know, as I got more and more into it, it, it was still about physical practice, but then I started to open up with a couple teachers and really understanding how you can bring in so many other aspects of your life into it if you choose to. And I think that's when I've heard you talk about teacher training, when you started to connect the idea of this is in medicine in the best kind of way, and this is good for me with um, letting down some of the barriers and being a part of a, a true community. Um, and, and, and specifically your story about being paired up with another student in class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, I have a lot to say in response to what you just said. I mean, I I do want to say quickly that I think that no matter where you start or why you start practicing yoga, that it always ends up uncovering pieces of yourself, like no matter what, even if you only practice one time and you're like, I wasn't into that, 
that is yoga too, to have that experience <laughs> of not being into it. And I think that really the issue is that we have too slim a definition of self. We think that our physical self is all that there ever is. And ultimately, like we're always experiencing on a mental and emotional level as well. But I did not understand any of this at all. Like I, I can wax poetic and philosophical about yoga all day now. But when I first started practicing yoga, I did not understand the shit at all. And I definitely was like, and I, I also didn't, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be understanding it, quite frankly, because I was like, I know that this is cultural appropriation to some degree. So I'm not really sure. I'm just going to stick with these poses. That feels okay. And when I went to teacher training, I just remember that for the first couple of weeks, like everybody was crying all the time, like nonstop crying. And I do not come from a family where it is appropriate to cry. And I was so confused <laughs> about why people were crying about yoga. I was like, what is it that like, what could possibly be happening for you that is instigating this? But we're practicing for weeks and weeks. And I we're building fire inside of ourselves. It's a fire. Um, we call it tapas in yoga. It's the fire that burns away the pieces of yourself that don't need to be there. So building this fire. And one week I was doing a partner yoga exercise with someone who is a lot smaller than I am. She is uh, much shorter, much more slender. And this partner yoga was, we were literally going to be laying our physical bodies on top of the other person. So I was panicked. I was definitely like, I'm going to hurt her. This is not good. All of my anxieties around my body started to come up. And the whole time that we were practicing together, every time I would even touch her, I would say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Just over and over again saying, I'm sorry. And um, at one point she stopped me and she was like, you know, she literally physically stopped me, put her hands on my shoulders. And she was like, you do know that you don't have to apologize for everything, right? Hmm. And I, I've been building this fire, building this tapas inside myself. And so the words, the fire burned away the things, the walls inside myself. And so I spoke without thinking. I spoke in a way like, like the words had always been on the tip of my tongue. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, um, I guess I'm apologizing for existing. Hmm. And it just slipped out so quickly. Like I would, I would never have said that if I'd given, if the walls had been up. But when I said it, I remember she kind of cocked her head at me and then got back to the practice. But I was stuck. I was like, you're apologizing for existing? How long have I been apologizing for existing? This isn't about a yoga pose right now. I'm not saying like, wow, you know, and then I practiced chair pose and then everything was so amazing. No, I am now like, what relationships have been affected by the fact that I think I have to apologize for existing? What work opportunities have been halted? What, um, what things have I bought? What things am I addicted to? Because I think I have to apologize for that. And I found myself just really struck. And I started crying in the middle of this class. Like the person who's like, I can't cry in front of people. I was just inconsolable. And I cried for the rest of the practice. I cried. The I got in my car and was crying. And it was the most cleansing tears. And it's I, the moral of this story is not like, yeah, and now I never apologize for existing anymore. Everything is so great because of yoga. No, I so compulsively apologize. I'm Southern. It's what we do. But I did 
it, it was, I think of it and I compare it to swiping down a foggy bathroom mirror and actually seeing myself fully, maybe for the first time. And that is what the practice offers, is an opportunity to see and not to be judgmental, not to, you can judge, that's fine, but you can also just accept. And that has been, that I I find more often than not that that's what I'm chasing in yoga is that feeling. Well, and you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about yoga is it's how you feel in the moment, how it makes you feel afterwards. And for some people, eventually it's about how it makes you look, but there's this massive disconnect for a lot of us, I think, of in the moment of practicing how we feel and would, you know, paint ourselves as super heroic and full of light and strong and powerful. And if we do catch ourselves in a mirror or in your case, document it, all of a sudden, those feelings go away and instead the judgment begins again. Oh, I actually don't look powerful in this pose. Look at my butt or my stomach or my whatever. There's, for whatever reason, I always feel really great in uh, in Warrior 2. And then if I look in the mirror, I feel like that meme where it's like <laughs> the really fat puppy who's like seeing his own reflection in the mirror. And I'm always Absolutely. like, God, that's what I look like? God. Totally. And, and that's one of the things you talk about wanting to get people to feel in your practice is that it's it's not about how you look. It's about how you feel and making yoga less about does my pose look like her doing that pose and more about what is this pose making me feel both physically and mentally? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I really realize that the breaking point is how do I look versus how do I feel? I real like so when I would practice postures at home and start and I was taking the photos of myself in the moment that the photo was being taken, when I'm practicing the posture, I'd be like, oh, my God, I feel amazing. Yoga is incredible. I am this bright light. I am all powerful, exactly as you said. And then I would go and look at the photos and I would just immediately start talking cash shit about myself. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, my God, look at my stomach. Look at my arms. Blah, blah, blah. And it took a while before I realized, like, I am the one saying these things about myself no one else. I find that I always want to blame it on someone else. You know, I want to blame it on the media. I want to blame it on my parents. I'm going to blame it on my friends, like all of these other influences that impact the way that I see myself. But on that day, on those days, in reality, I am the one who was saying these things about myself and really being able to sit with that and accept that I am causing myself harm. And then thinking like, are these ideas that are really like my ideas? Are these things that I believe or are these things that I think I'm supposed to believe? And really letting all of that be there too. And saying like, okay, well, from here on out, I'm just going to go with how I feel. I'm not going to go with what it looks like because what it looks like is just ultimately, it's just going to change. So it really doesn't matter. Like that's the one thing that we can really count on in this life is that change is inevitable and it is always coming swiftly and that your body is always going to change. It's always, it's meant to evolve and ultimately it's meant to degrade and it's meant to come into a space of decomposition. And that's important because as you grow older and as time goes on, you become way more intelligent and wise and aware, and you can't have that without also having the change. So if you just say, 
you know what? I'm just going to go with how do I feel? How do I feel? I feel good. That's good. That's great. That's pointy. And when you feel good, you look good. And this is just the, if you can, people can, you can try to look like what society tells you to look like, but if you don't feel good, you won't look good. And that's just what it is. That's so true. But also some people are never going to look like what society wants you to look like. Like it will not be possible. So until you decide that having those bad thoughts about yourself and shit talking yourself will change nothing and will affect you in no positive way. Um, you're going to keep doing that. And, and, I, and I heard you in an interview calling yourself uh, a lifelong body shamer. And you're not sure mm. if you'll ever fix it, but you have to acknowledge it. I am 100% there with you. I'm much kinder to other people than I am to myself, but Always. I even I even know it in myself with other people. And mm-hmm. and I, it doesn't matter how much deep programming I try to do about what society suggests is the model aesthetic. It doesn't matter how much I can push back on. I shouldn't think of this. The only reason I think this is because of what the media has shown me or what people say. It doesn't really matter how many times I read something and try to get myself out of that mindset deep down somewhere within. It is so ingrained that I know that about myself and how I will view myself and even others in, in ways that I don't want to. How do you know that about yourself? Cause you've said the same and, and then move forward and try to stop that from happening or change your approach. I think that's really the key actually is that there is no changing it. There's no, that's, that's been the key for me is that there's no changing it. There's only acceptance it's very much in the way that an alcoholic doesn't say like, I'm going to get over alcoholism one day. They say I'm an alcoholic period. End of story. That is what it is. And so when I say I'm a body shamer, it's just owning this truth about myself and I'm not trying to change it. I'm not trying to move beyond it. I'm like, this is just what it is. And I found that acceptance in the same way, I would argue that other, not just alcoholics, but other addicts would say this as well, that it's so imperative to really own your identity because otherwise you're just, you're not paying attention to who you actually are. And you're trying to like turn into something else. And the reality is that we never change. Like everybody is who they are and you're really just becoming more aware of who you actually are instead of who you maybe decided you were supposed to be or who you've been trying to be. And so a lot of it for me is just saying, this is who I am and this is just what it's going to be. And I think there's this very interesting like uh, mentality where it's like, that's defeatist and you should try to be better than right. where you are right now. And, and I think that that is really just a function of power and wanting to be the best and own everything. And I think that's its own issue or it's its own thing to consider, but that the reality is that you're already at your best. You're already perfect all the time. It's, and it's one, it's a truth that is repeated in every culture and uh, every spiritual tradition, the most, the mystical version of every spiritual tradition says this exact same thing. And it's just that you are exactly how you are meant to be right now. You are already perfect. And the problem, the, the thing that makes you not experience that is just believing that you're not perfect. But that if you say, I have all the tools that I need, I have all the answers already here, then on a, just for me personally, it results in a lot more happiness overall. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it too, is at some point in your life, you say, am I able to change any of this by constantly thinking about it? 
And if the answer is no, then you've made a choice to spend your time thinking about something that will have no impact or change. You will just waste your time thinking constantly about something that you don't have control over. And that, to me, is something I need to remind myself when I get caught up in those in those cycles. I loved listening to you talk about, you know, being able to travel to teach yoga and being able to meet people in person who had their expectations for yoga as a practice and as a you know mental health and wellness tool changed by you and the way that you view it. Um, would you say that you yourself have gone on a journey in terms of your own understanding of yoga, even mm. in the last you know, year or so with it being COVID and a pandemic and, you know, you're trying to do classes from home and not being out in those spaces with people. Has that changed any of the way that you look at it or your connection to it? You know, I really think that every moment of yoga practice that I had prior to COVID was practice for COVID life, because mm. I think that there's so much that was, um, uncovered for me through the pandemic, but also really things that, I had um, perhaps thought about theoretically prior to this, but that really became very clear to me. And one of the things is that we live in a society of fear and that a lot of us are really just programmed to look for negativity at any cost and that we start that comes from believing that we are inherently bad, just like that there's something wrong with us on a core level. And I think that there's also a tendency to really seek out the approval of other people and being what it means to be in a group. And I've always felt that live yoga classes, the group experience, really just allows that as a problem to fester because there's so much comparison that happens when you're in a studio setting where you're like comparing yourself against the person next to you. And you're like, am I practicing it like they are? Or just even like looking at the teacher and thinking like it distracts you from having your own experience in which ultimately the yoga teacher that you're looking for is the teacher that's inside of you. And a any teacher that you have is just leading you to that teacher. But I think that in a class experience and a live in a live group class experience, so much gets distracted by being around other people. And so I found that being able to have that physical distance from each other, but still be intimate online is really helpful in developing a yoga practice. And I think it makes it more accessible to more people. And I think that the pandemic also has really uncovered the necessity of yoking, of bringing together the light and the dark within yourself, and that it's not just something, I think before the pandemic, wellness in general was just kind of seen as like, meh, if I have time, or like it's like self-care, right. like, yeah, okay, I guess I could care about right. that. But the pandemic was like, no, you will go crazy if you don't do this. Like you have to right now. And I think that that's something that there's a lot that we were running from before as a society. And the pandemic was like, we're not running from that anymore. We're, right. we are uncovering, we are mm -hmm. untethering. And that process for me has felt so powerful and so cleansing. And I've felt a lot of gratitude for the uncovering that we can't play pretend together anymore. And I do think that it's evolved my understanding of what it means to 
both practice and teach and that practicing is teaching and uh, the way that I show up as a teacher for sure. We're running out of time. I have a couple more quick ones for you. Just made me think of one of them that I, I thought about as you were mentioning posting to social and, and suddenly having this throng of people coming your way to say that you were displaying something meaningful to them. And it results in people magazine stories and all these other things coming to you. And that must feel wonderful in the sense that you get to represent something that people have been looking for. But that doesn't make it any less uncomfortable to still be the fat black queer woman who's known as an outlier who is representing something different because it hasn't been represented before. Where, was there a moment where that became more comfortable for you or does it still straddle two things where you're grateful for the attention and the place of power it gives you while also having the very natural feelings that we feel when we're outliers and, and singular? You know, your perspective on this is so interesting to me because it is so different from my own. Hmm. I do not experience a feeling of, um, like, I don't uh, have an issue with the singularity of it. Again, going back to the point of always being weird and always having been, <laughs> I've never not had people, never not known that people were judging me. And so it has, if anything, the tokenism bothers me because mm -hmm. I think that there is right now, because diversity is a trending topic, there is a like mad grab for anyone who wants to make money to just try to glom onto anything that could be seen as like edgy or of the trendy. And so that to me is really boring because it does not actually like move us forward as a society. It's just really basic. So that is boring to me, but I don't, and I actually, I also, I have a lot of conflict around the attention that I received because I did not set out to, I didn't set out to be a yoga teacher. And even in my practice, so much of my, my teaching practice is my actual practice. So part of that has been recognizing where my desire from attention for attention comes from and what that means about me as a person. And so I'm very critical of my desire for attention. And so I don't necessarily feel like, wow, yeah, this is so great. Like I, I am just now, it's only because of the impact that I see can be made and the and the impact of representation and just having people come out to events who are literally like, this has changed my life. I thought that I could not do this thing. And now I think, and it's not just yoga. It's literally people being like, I thought that I couldn't do fill in the blank. And when I hear that, I'm like, okay, that is worthwhile. And when I think about the children who are growing up in a world where they actually see body diversity and they are not taught that there's only one way to have a body. I think about like, what will they be like as adults? What will their children be like? Like this is generations of change. I think that is incredible. But the impact on me personally, I have a lot of conflict with because I think that it weighs very heavily on my spirit. And I think that it makes it difficult for me to do the work that I need to do. Well, but and to, I, that, to that point, oh, yeah, I guess please. my question was in part because, you know, being like a woman in, in the sports world, there's a lot of judgment and guessing around like, I'm surprised that you're here because women don't like sports. Mm. And you're like, no, I do. And this is normal. And there's plenty of us. And I would feel the same way for you. There's this, why wouldn't 
a, a, a fat black woman want to do yoga? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't exactly. black women in general want to do yoga? Why wouldn't fat people want Why wouldn't anyone in the world want to do this thing that is culturally accepted as good for you and healthy and, and inspiring and all these other good things? And so it was more the idea that the attention was coming to you in part from an incredulous place that was so uninformed about Mm -hmm. and and that, and that would feel like, Oh yeah, I'm breaking down barriers, but also why the fuck are these barriers here? Like why, (laughs) why, why is it weird that I would want this? You know? Totally. I mean, I think that um, the barriers are so representative of much larger barriers. The barriers in the wellness industry for fat, black, queer people, let's say, are so representative of barriers that exist in the rest of our world and barriers that I had encountered way before I started practicing yoga and showing it on the internet. And I think that it is I'm, I am grateful that people are talking about these barriers. These are barriers that like, I am lucky to be able to speak freely and like make a career the way that I want to make a career and do what I want to do with my life. But my mother did not have the same, does not have the same experience. My grandmother certainly didn't. My aunt did not, (laughs) don't. And I think that it's really like just showing something that has always been there and that, uh, we as a society have just pretended is not happening. And now it's like, no, we're not pretending anymore. This is just what it is. And that acceptance is so beautiful. And so ha- I'm so happy to be a part of it. But is it hard? Is it painful? Is it? Does it suck to be underestimated? Does it suck that people have such a limited view of the world? I mean, I, I actually don't really think that it does. I mean, the yoga practitioner in me is like, that's how it has to be. That's what the world is. And I think it's, I think the differences are important. And I think that we're all living our yoga and we're all learning our lessons. Hmm. All right. We are so out of time. So we got to do this quick, but you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish inquisition. That's right. It's the Spanish inquisition. It's the speed round. Number one. Your current career is canceled. Everything that you do, the entire empire, everything related to it is canceled. What do you do instead for a job? Oh my goodness. I'm going swimming. Just, I'm just going to go swim in natural bodies of water. That's what I'm going to do. And that's, somehow you're going to get new- paid for it. Somehow I don't doubt that you would. You would figure out a way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> oh my God. The time that, um, I woke up in my high school dorm room and there was a cockroach next to my head on my pillow. It was not cool. <laughs> that was my most scared moment. Number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Mm. Mm. The best in the world? Oh <laughs> my goodness. Ah, ah, good. Oh, it's, it's supposed to be lightning. Okay. <laughs> Best in the world at, uh, shit. I'm trying to think of something that's not hokey, but I guess I'll just say what is really on my mind. I just be the best at breathing and being. Wow. Be, okay. Here. World's world's best breather. That's it. That's a low <laughs> bar. I don't know if there's ever, no one's ever been trapped. Breathing but, is hard. It's, yeah. <laughs> and it's especially true. if you go swimming for your career. That's very that's true. That's very, these are all tying together. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music or politics or TV or anywhere would you most like to be your best friend? Oh, 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 <laughs> 
Ooh, uh, Francis McDormand. Oh, God. So fun. So yes. fun. Uh, yes. Does not give a F at no, all. Never on any day. <laughs> Number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? <laughs> um, okay. Oh, God. They're all meaningless. And I have so many of them. Um, wow. Wow, Stanley. There's so many, and I can't think of any right now. Oh, man. Um, yeah, honestly, my biggest pet peeve is the way that I'm parenting my dog. I'm so upset about it. He has horrible <laughs> behavior. And I'm like, how did I become one of these people with children that's horribly behaved? Oh, that's amazing. Your pet peeve is yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? To nothing that I want to say on here. <laughs> I've been very embarrassed in my life. Um, people find all of those examples during the I'm polyamory sure episodes of your internet. podcast. <laughs> no, I wish that was my most embarrassing thing, but I'm sure it's somewhere on the internet if you Google hard enough. Okay, I'm going to start looking. Uh, I mean, you've publicly talked about peeing on your yoga mat during class. So, you know, oh, I, I forgot about that. That, that well, means no the bar is set high. To let people know that. Yeah, <laughs> so I was going to say the bar is set very high. If you're just volunteering that, then whatever, oh, you're, whatever you're hiding must literally, be great. Literally, <laughs> it doesn't break. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, uh, my attitude toward people who are difficult or who I find to be difficult. I would hmm. like to be more compassionate. Okay. Interesting. That's a good one. I like that. Um, what, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play at your next party. Who is it? Ooh. Oh, wow. Just because they're on my mind, bikini kill. I would love that. Oh, badass. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest <laughs> failure? Oh, Oh, Wow. Oh, there was a time that I was invited to be a part of a think tank that I was there. I felt I was so honored to be there, but also felt, I mean, it was me and a bunch of scientists. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, am I really supposed to be here? And we were all submitting our concepts for how we would but I'm summarizing, but how we yeah. would make the world better. And I did not feel confident in my idea and I did not say it out loud. And then Aww. a few moments later, I heard somebody else say literally word for word, my idea. And it was such a lesson, a very painful lesson, but a lesson oh. just be confident in yourself. Yeah. Be confident. I love failures that we remember and learn from though. A lot of people, um, you know, aren't able to take that moment and pivot into something like moving forward as how I'm going to behave differently, which is great. Uh, and finally, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, <laughs> all things that I don't know if I am, but I would hope somebody would say it nice, generous, and um, patient. Okay, fat, stinky, and uh, <laughs> exactly extremely exactly awkward right. is what we're gonna. Yes. Do. <laughs> yes. Please, uh, and finally, bonus: you got any uh, suggestions for someone who I should have on the pod who's a great guest and very interesting from any oh my God, so any industry? People. 
so many people, but I would start with Myrna Valeria. She is the Myrnavator at the Myrnavator on Instagram and okay. uh, Latoya Snow at, at IML Shantae on, hey. uh, on Instagram. They are amazing. Okay, I'm on it. Hey, thanks for doing this. It was so awesome to talk thanks to you. Thanks for having me, truly. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for me to rant or rave or tell you to read, listen, or watch something. But this month, this will be where our installments of what Pride means to you live. So here's Jessamine Stanley. I came out before Pride was trendy. And so I and I came out in North Carolina where there was not what well, specifically Greensboro, North Carolina, where there was no our pride was a picnic table with like some pamphlets on it. So <laughs> this whole idea of like glorifying pride and it feels very performative to me. And it also just doesn't really, I don't feel a very strong connection to it. But when I think about the idea of what pride is supposed to be and just really feeling strong in your own identity and not totally unapologetic, middle finger up, I don't have to explain myself to anybody that is what pride is to me. It is middle fingers up. It is I am who I am, regardless of how anybody else feels about it. And that I know that everybody always harps on love and loving other, loving your partner. I, uh, I'm kind of, I believe in the big oneness of love. I think that a lot of what we identify as love and relationships is actually infatuation. So I'm less interested in that specifically, but I do think that just being able to say, I am who I am and you can take it or leave it. That's what pride means to me. Thank you to Jessamine. Love talking to her. Hope you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, This week we have a special bonus pod. Cubs superstar Anthony Rizzo joins the show. That's what she said. So early on in the season, you know, runs and and batting average and stuff were sort of lower in the league. And all of a sudden there's this pivot point after which the team has had this great success. Is there a moment you can point to a a rousing speech, a a change in the lineup? Is there something that changed? Um, Man, I I can't pinpoint one thing. I just think that as we settled in, uh, as everyone settled in the whole team and, and kind of relaxed and, Certain guys had a little bit of success to be able to get them to relax a little bit has really helped. And um, I think you've just seen it with with everyone, our starting pitching, our bullpen, the guys who have come up to help uh, and kind of solidify themselves early to be to be guys going forward. So uh, and then offensively, same thing. We, uh, a lot of us got off to slow starts. And uh, I think just everyone kind of having a couple of good games, getting to be able to relax and things starting, things start leveling out. And uh, we have good at good guys here with great attitudes. So that's definitely helped. I know it's easy to have fun and good energy when you're winning, but it also feels like sometimes one goes before the other. And with this team, especially, it just feels like when you guys are having fun with each other, the baseball gets better. Does some of that then have to do with the new guys? You got to get them in on the handshakes and in on, you know, the, the fun yeah. stuff so that it feels like you're all more connected. Definitely. And I think uh, it's just, you know, credit to all of us for being here and, and credit to the guys coming in that have really bought into this culture and, you know, you get them to be themselves as fast as you can and good things happen. Um, you know, not when guys come into different places and thinking they have to be, someone else that they're not, uh, it, it usually is detrimental to them 
um, which is then there for the team. So all the guys coming in, just letting them relax and be themselves and accepting that themselves is good here. And, and that's what we like. And all the, all the guys that haven't been here that came in and that have been getting called up and have been uh, with us since opening day has just been, it's a really good group of, of older young guys, I guess. So yeah. to say. Yeah. Enjoy playing with each other. Uh, maybe it's the, uh, the, the body armor sport water. Are you just perhaps secretly putting your new sponsored item into the water bottles of teammates? Was that the pivot point? Uh, I mean, I do have, right next to me <laughs> and he's drinking it <laughs> so whenever we're hanging out in the room on the road uh i'll always give some to the guys but um i mean it's pretty much everywhere i go but it could be the secret definitely passing it out to the guys in the sport <laughs> so uh can't, it definitely doesn't hurt you get a lot of uh opportunities to to sponsor things to be involved in things you are super involved in the community and charitable stuff how do you pick and choose where you spend your time and where you spend your sponsor efforts yeah i think it's it starts with the company and the people uh, behind it and body armor for me is kind of similar to my career with the cubs seeing them grow um being a very small company even before i was there with with obviously kobe and having his name attached to it has been amazing but just seeing them grow over the years, it's like the Cubs growing over the years from 12, 13, 14 to being really good in 15. And now Body Armor, it's the same thing. They're, we're, we're in a position to, you know, be the number one sports drink here in a few years, and that's our goal. And It's been fun to be part of that. I want to talk about David Ross as a manager. Boog Shambi said he's a sneaky a-hole, and Rossi has admitted that that is true. So I want to know, what do you guys do that sort of triggers – uh, and, and turns him from Grandpa Rossi that we all love into, you know, sneaky a-hole or, or red-faced manager? Um, he just expects perfection. And, you know, we all do. And if you chase, when you chase perfection, you're always going to probably usually end up coming on the short end of it. So, um, but it's just fundamentals, um, doing the right things, doing the little things that people don't notice except, you know, in the dugout. So those are the types of things that definitely irk him uh, <laughs> and get him off his rocker. So but it's been good so far. He's been really good at communicating with us and uh, we've had fun playing for him. When it's his rocker, it's a, it's a literal rocking chair as grandpa Rossi He literally has to get out of it and creaky knees. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the differences between being just a teammate where he's still a stickler for that stuff. And we knew he was from the day he got here um, and being a manager. So what is the biggest difference with your relationship or maybe his relationship with the team now that he's the skipper? It's just the day to day interactions of, of managing all the players now. Um, there's 26 guys that he's got the command of and um you know, all the decisions that are made, the playing time, guys should be pitching more, guys shouldn't be, should have left me in longer, I should have had that bat. All the things that go into, you know, we're all, all of us in the big leagues want to want to perform and, and think, you know, think we are here for a reason. So we all want the opportunities and that's not, can't be easy, you know, managing that. I, I don't know what that's like, but um he's done a really good job so far of getting everyone in and, and playing time wise and uh, just managing all the personalities. 
you said you can't imagine that, but you're you're basically a second manager. And it's so clear from the way you interact with your teammates and rile them up to how you even interact with opponents and players on other teams. You such have such a good rapport with people. Have you ever had a teammate that you absolutely hated? And as the captain and as that kind of glue guy, did you have to just fake your way through it or was it was it just stay away from him? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think I absolutely hate it. That's strong for me, just the nature of who I am. But there's definitely guys over the years that you just don't gel with. And that's OK. I mean, I'm sure you could ask anyone relates to this. Right. I mean, you work with someone for we're, we're together for about eight months every day straight. I want to rip, you know, even my best friend's heads off. It's <laughs> right. So, um, but I think the beauty of baseball is the mutual respect of when you get on that field, you know, personality wise aside, I want whoever on our team to be the best they can that day. Cause that's what it's all about is winning. And when you have that common goal, it doesn't matter if you love each other, hate each other, been on teams where not a lot of guys like each other. And I've been on teams where we all love each other. And, but when you get on that field, you can't tell the difference. Uh, what's the biggest difference between having Hoyer at the helm versus Theo? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just playing baseball and we play in between the lines and the clubhouse. Uh, Jed, you know, conversations with Jed are always easy. Same with Theo. And um, I think with the transition and with, with Jed and knowing everything here and knowing the ins and outs of the Cubs and, Knowing all of us players has been uh, nice for us to just not have uh, someone come in completely new and just, you know, with no ties to you. So it's it's been pretty nice so far and we'll see how it goes. You were uh, drinking through bearheads uh, incidents, I think, thus far, although maybe they maybe Jed's just better at keeping those behind the scenes. Uh, you know, Jed Hoyer also talked to the media about being frustrated with the vaccination levels, not hitting the 85 percent and being able to change some protocols and lower restrictions. What are the conversations around the clubhouse or maybe from Rossi about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the beauty is with this vaccine, it's so tricky. Um, you know, guys, guys make their own decisions. And if, if you know, we support guys who didn't get it and we support guys who did get it and that's just what it is. And I think that, you know, with the competitive advantage, obviously staying on the field is the number one priority always. And uh, that's everyone's priority. And that's what we want to do is stay on the field. So if you do get sick, uh, it definitely takes you off the field and it's, it, it's disadvantage to us. But the beauty of all of this is that, like I said, is the guys who didn't get it have that choice and the guys who did get it have that choice. And you're going to support them. Uh, we're running out of time here. So we're going to a speed round. Uh, more likely to make a return two chains or Anthony Rizzo, perfect ERA pitcher? Uh, two chains. I think okay. I retired. Sure whoa, whoa, breaking news. Retiring <laughs> as a pitcher. Uh, will Kevin ever get his own Instagram? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Sorry. Disappointing fans everywhere. Uh, have you added any new songs to your karaoke set list? I haven't sang in a while um, with COVID. It's tough to, to get the groups and share the mic. So it's been right. a while. You've got um, a lot of new songs to add to yeah. the repertoire that have right. uh, taken right. hold over the last year. Uh, why is whoop? There it is. The team's home run song. This is way out ahead of the scoop. There it is. Ads. You guys just tapped into that nostalgia. Uh, what, what's that about? Um, I don't know. I think Dante just started playing it one day and it's stuck, but it's funny because Jock hit that home run yesterday and our dugout was going scoop. There it is. <laughs> oh, Why do you great. say that? Uh, 
And finally, any band or musician can play your next World Series winning party. Who is it? Probably stick with Eddie. Uh, Good choice. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, he's been with us too thick and thin. He loves the Cubs. He's a good friend. So uh, definitely, definitely want to get him back in the backyard again and uh, jam out and have some fun. Usually when I ask people that question, it's a, it's a real tough get, but for you, it's a, it's actually one that you could pull off, which is impressive. Yeah. Hey, congrats on the success lately and keep at it. And thanks for the time. All right, Sarah. Thank you. That's what she said. Thanks for listening. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app to subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain on iTunes. You can rate five stars, please, and give a review. Leave me a a question or a comment. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said. 